Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Happy New Year, everybody. Hoping for a wonderful year for everybody out there and for brighter days ahead. Before we get going, just a reminder that Across the Margin podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com. Check out all the offerings they have, and there's a lot in store for this year. So keep up with them at OsirisPod.com. This episode of Across the Margin Podcast features an interview with Lena Zeldovich, a writer and editor specializing in the journalism of solutions. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Reader's Digest, Smithsonian, Popular Science, Scientific America, The Atlantic, and Newsweek, among many other popular outlets. And she has won awards from the Newswoman's Club of New York, the Society of Professional Journalists Deadline Club, and the American Society of Journalists and Authors. Her most recent book, The Other Dark Matter, The Science and Business of Turning Waste into Wealth and Health, is the focus of this episode. Did you know that the average person produces about 400 pounds of excrement a year? Keep in mind there, there are more than 7 billion people who live on this planet. Because of the diseases it spreads, humankind have learned to distance themselves from our waste. But the long line of engineering marvels we've created to do so, from Roman sewage systems and medieval latrines to the immense computerized treatment plants we use today, this has also done considerable damage to the Earth's ecology. Now, scientists tell us that we've been wasting our waste. When recycled correctly, this resource, cheap and widely available, can be converted into a sustainable energy source, act as an organic fertilizer, Provide effective medical therapy for antibiotic-resistant bacterial infection, and so much more. In clear and engaging prose that draws on her extensive research and interviews, Lena documents the massive redistribution of nutrients and sanitation inequities across the globe. She profiles the pioneers of waste upcycling, from startups in African villages to innovators in American cities that convert sewage into fertilizer, biogas, crude oil, and even life-saving medicine. She breaks taboos surrounding sewage disposal and shows how a hygienic waste repurposing can help battle climate change, reduce acid rain, and eliminate toxic algae blooms. Ultimately, she implores us to use our innate organic power for the greater good. So in this episode, Lena and I discuss the stigmas around human waste that has led it to be undervalued throughout history. We converse upon the many invaluable uses of our own organic matter, from fertilizer to biofuels and beyond, and we explore how sewage technologies and greening up fuel can help fight climate change. Grossly ambitious and rooted in scientific scholarship, Lena's book, The Other Dark Matter, shows how human excrement can be a life-saving, money-making resource if we make better use of it. This is a great interview. I have no doubt you will enjoy my discussion with Lena Zeldovich. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. podcast so like i said thanks for coming on the show um i love the book i learned so much and you know there's so many big ideas that are really important and can be really important to 
address some huge problems we're facing out there. But to kind of get us started, I'm like, I'd love to hear about when you got interested in the idea and, and, and when, you know, kind of how this book came to be and why you want to write about this topic. Um, I think I was always interested in this topic. Um, and it came from my sort of a fairly unconventional upbringing. I grew up on my grandfather's farm in Russia um, and he fertilized um, our farm with our own sewage. So every fall, he would open up a septic tank and manually, wearing various kinds of um, protective gear, would dip this massive buckets into it and distribute it all over our land. And it was a very special occasion. It was, you know, comparing to American holidays, like Christmas or maybe like a birthday because yeah. it only happened once a year and it was just so much preparation and mystery around it. Um, you know, he had into that septic pit and my grandma would make sure I wasn't anywhere near because she was mm. afraid I was going to fall in and I wanted to see what was in it. So he was the only person who was allowed to deal with it. So it was, it's like he had this special skills and the whole like, opening, it was like opening a present except it stunk, but it was part of the whole experience. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I followed him around as he fertilized you know, the land and I, I grew um, produce with them you know, during summer. And so during all that, what I've learned from him is that you, you know, one of his favorite sayings was you have to feed the earth the way you feed people because you can't take forever. Eventually the earth is going to run out. Um, and so to me that, you know, sewage was such a part of life and it made sense and it was logical and it was beautiful. There was a circular thing. We take from the land and then we give back to it so that it can feed us again. So I never developed the aversion to poop, sewage, mm -hmm. shit, anything. Mm -hmm. To mm -hmm. me, it's what you live with. And it was it, 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 how it had to be. And I thought the whole world did the same. Mm -hmm. up on oh yeah. Beach. <laughs> yeah. Um, even, so I knew some people had flushing toilets and so did we, but some people lived in big apartment buildings and they had flushing toilets. And I always assumed we just went someplace to a bigger tank where a similar thing happened to it, just somehow differently. So imagine my shocker when I learned that the world doesn't do that. Yeah. And at least not the Western world, not the developed world. Yep. And most people just want to flush and forget and never deal with it. Yeah. And it didn't make sense to me. I was wondering, like, what are they going to eat? Like, eventually, whatever Earth feeds them is going to run out. Yeah. Uh, and guess what? It does, in some cases, run out. No question about it. I think it's so beautiful, actually. It's, it seems to me that's like a gift to, to be exposed to that natural cycle and, and actually what you can do, um, you know, with this waste. And just, you know, so many of us, me included, when we were younger, just there was, it was just pushed out of our life, didn't think anything about it. And, you know, we had to come back to, you know, sources like you and, and books like this to actually learn how special it is. And I love he was composting early on. I mean, mm -hmm. a long time ago before, you know, compost has kind of become into national discourse in a different way. That was really exciting to see. Yeah, yeah. So we, we composted our sewage too. And uh, what was really interesting, so my grandfather had a system. He, he, he put one together, close it, let it sit for at least a year, sometimes three, and then he would open it up. And what was inside, you know, smelled, looked, and felt just like a classic garden dirt, that yeah. rich dirt, that, that it smelled so good. It smelled of the next year's harvest. Yeah. Um, 
black gold yeah. right there black gold so yeah. yeah you i mean you didn't develop this stigma um right off the bat that many many had and this this book does a good job and yeah, i'm assuming it was one of your goals to kind of help break down this stigma that 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 you know exists around waste yeah that was definitely the goal um I did want to break down the stigma because I think it's such an important point, especially now that we're realizing that with the effects of climate change and with you know diminishing food security, mm-hmm. it's important to restore that circular economy and circular agriculture. Yeah. Uh, circular agriculture is a really hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important to make people understand that sewage, when handled properly, doesn't have to spread disease. Um, it can be made disease-free and it makes an awesome fertilizer. Yeah. It is not an easy stigma to break because, you know, we've lived, you know, the society's lived about 100 to 200 years worth of building that stigma, you know, based on everything we know about disease and how feces spread it. But modern technologies and even some ancient technologies too um, have proven to us that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I see that this stigma is, is changing. When I was starting the book, I was seeing the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. I, I was saying that, you know, the sewage tide is turning back. Um, and I think now I see changing even further because um, the young people really like, you know, poop emojis and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and they play with them a lot. Yeah. Like, a, you know, an, an, a cultural icon now. Um, and they're no longer afraid to talk about this topic and, and, and they kind of are interested in this topic. It's yeah. a pretty, it's a pretty interesting substance, our own dark matter. Absolutely. And it's, it, it is, it is fun to see and, and important that it, that it has kind of worked its way into pop culture and into people's lives. And, you know, we do need to talk about these things. And, um, that was a little bit of a challenge of bringing the book to life, wasn't it? Some of, um, uh, the editors you talk to, or maybe publishing companies, um, might not have wanted to touch this topic. Is that correct? It is true. Um, I'm very grateful that my agent was quite excited about it. Mm. But we did have so once we put the book proposal together and started shipping it out, we did have some interesting answers. Um, a lot of editors from you know the top publishing houses like the topic, like the writing were very intrigued by it but they said we don't know how to talk about it we don't know how to discuss it at editorial meetings we mm-hmm. don't know how to market it what do we even put on the cover a pile of shit <laughs> <laughs> and so and so they passed it and I was a little disappointed I was like I thought we were like further along yeah yeah um but University of Chicago actually I had three ultimately I had three publishing houses interested uh, slightly smaller and mm-hmm. slightly edgier who were not afraid of uh, this you know, cutting edge controversial <laughs> somewhat stinky topic um, and and you know we went with the University of Chicago because it it was the best and yeah the most interesting, yeah good on good on them um, so the book starts out and you you do kind of a deep dive into the history of how humans have dealt with waste and I was really floored um, upon when we came upon the first flushing toilet. Uh, some of these um, extremely sophisticated systems that that these you know uh, cities and villages had from many many years ago. I think it'd be fun to hear you talk about some of the um, you know kind of ways in which um, you know humans were first 
uh, dealing with waste. And then, you know, kind of that leads us to how it is was problematic in many ways, too. I mean, there was ocean dumping and a lot of different things that that had to be worked out over time. So it was very clear from my research that even our earliest ancestors, like our Neolithic ancestors, wanted nothing to do with their own shit. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in today's Scotland, when um, archaeologists found uh, a village dating back to Neolithic time, they actually found like a primitive version of a stone toilet mm-hmm. that had sort of like a seat. And then there was like an odd flow that led you know, to, to the sea. So people didn't want this around their houses. Mm-hmm. And it you know, it makes sense. So when we were nomadic, we just left our deposits wherever and walked away from them. And it was easy. Mother Nature took care of, of it and we never had to deal with it. But once we settled and started farming and shit really began to pile up and that you know, became a real problem. And the bigger the cities grew, the bigger the pro- problem it was. Um, some of the ancient societies uh, dealt with it by you know, building this sort of like a sewage gutters and flushing it out with rain or with water. Some probably put it on the fields too. But when it becomes really interesting is with uh, you know, medieval and pre-industrial societies in Japan, in China, because they really figured out how to do it right. Mm. Um, they, they, they had an amazing systems of cleaning cities of their night soil, um, which is poo, um, and shuttling it over to the countryside. And and every city did it a little bit differently, but generally the system was that there were um, services called night soil men who walked around the city with carts and some with buckets and they picked up um, the residents chamber pots that they put out the door they collected this um you know their daily harvest the Mm -hmm. morning harvest Mm -hmm. and they took it outside the city sometimes by carrying it sometimes by horses or donkeys and sometimes by boats um and um there in some cases they composted it in some cases they sort of dried it and, and 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 sorted it depending on what type of food they gathered and the poo of the wealthy residents usually went for more money because they had better diets and uh-huh. so their, their feces had greater amount of nutrients in it mm-hmm. you know more diverse nutrients so it was those were really interested systems yeah it's wild to see some some you know some of the cultures are super advanced with this and then you know tuned into this natural natural systems but then it was real fun as you move along and, and we're going to start talking about some of these amazing um, stories that are in your book and, and uses of waste, but you see these cities um, such as New York and DC. Well, I, I think we could start there. I thought that was a fun one that are using um, their city's waste in such fabulous ways. And in DC's water sewage plant, they, um, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're making some money from it too. Can you talk about DC a little bit and what they're doing with all their waste? Yeah, I think DC was my favorite. They, I think I, I think that's why I wanted to start with it too. That that was that blew me away. Yeah, they've really gotten you figured out end to end. And when I first started the book, I knew that their plan was quite advanced, but I didn't realize how perfectly you know circular it actually was. It mm-hmm. was a real you know fun to see. So the setup is actually quite simple, and of course, as you know, 
simple, simple and brilliant. So when the sewage arrives from our capital into that sewage plant, it's pumped into pressure cookers that cook it at about 300 degrees Fahrenheit and pressurize the six atmospheres. That's near six times more than what we're feeling right now. Mm -hmm. At the end of this process, there's no life left. There are no you know, pathogens, no E. coli, no salmonella, no nothing. Nothing's no all disease and issues. Yeah. 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 You just get this kind of like you know, massive amount of um, sludge. Um, after that, it's pumped into biodigesters, these massive tanks in which a bacteria that naturally lives in sewage chews through it. Um, and as a result of that, what they call biodigestion, uh, we have two products. One is biogas that basically methane with some other you know, impurities added to it that can be burned to generate electricity. Mm -hmm. um, and another one is kind of like this muddy substance that you see on the riverbanks you know, in, in, in the spring when snow melts. And so what they do with that is they put it through a dewatering process mm -hmm. and out comes garden dirt. There's like, there's no other way to describe it. It's your mm -hmm. classic garden dirt that you go to Home Depot and buy, except this one you made yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and high in nutrients as well. I, yeah, very high nutrients, um, you know, very, very high in nitrogen, potassium, mm -hmm. phosphorus, um, everything you need to grow with food. Yeah, NPK, so they, that's exactly what plants and, and trees need. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, so they dry it up. They work with a third party company that packages it into, um, you know, classic you know, fertilizer size bags. And the ultimate product is called Bloom. Yeah. Because guess what? It does makes make things a little. Yeah. I was glad you um in that chapter too, you mentioned I'm a, one of the things I do is I'm an arborist as well. I'm a certified arborist who works with trees and plants. And uh I've been using melorganite, which comes from Detroit through one of these systems for years. It's one of my favorite organic fertilizers. And um I was glad to see that got mentioned too, because that's from Milwaukee's sewage district. And they've been doing it for 90 years over in Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah. So they were they were on my list of things to go and visit, mm -hmm. and I just plain ran out of time. It was my first book. Yep. The year that they, I was given to write it went so fast, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't fit it into my schedule. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, so many stories that you point to, and then also you you, you get into New York, which was really really fascinating because you got to think about New York, such a big city. What are they doing with everything there? And so there was 14 sewage plants. Um, Dealing with the what is it, 1.8 billion gallons of uh, waste per day, and you know, yeah. you point to where it all goes down. When I know, I was always curious when I first drove through Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Like, what are those giant silver, like you know, uh -huh. giant eggs? And you know, you can see them like even when you're flying into town. But that's where um, the magic happens. And we we've already discussed how waste can be used for fertilizer, and you pointed to it a little bit, but. A lot of biogas is generated there that's created and used for energy. And I like yeah. to hear more about, you know, biogas and, and how that comes from sewage. And because that's that's that could be, you know, it looks like Con Ed's uh, trying to find different ways that could actually be used to put into the grid eventually. And this could really be something that's powering everything at some point, which is wild. 
which is yes, yeah. that's that, that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so New York City's waste really does have a huge biogas potential. You know, we, there's there's so many of us here. Um, it's a little bit in, in you know in the early stages. So basically, Connecticut you know says yes, it can work. You know, I think they've tested it at a pilot version. Yes, it works, mm-hmm. and now everything has to be scaled up. Plus, you know, the gas that comes out of the biodigester has some impurities in it, like sulfur and some other things that need to be taken out so they don't present hazards. Um, and that's, I think, where it still is. You know, there is yeah. a spot there where Kinetison is planning to build a big, a bigger plant once they're ready. But as everything on the ground scale, it takes time. Yeah. 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 So it's super. Uh, there's so much potential there, though. That, that, I found that super, super exciting. So, um, you know, we've mentioned climate change a t- couple of times. So I'd kind of like to point that question in a little bit and, and discuss where you um, see how how these processes and everything could really help towards uh, helping this huge problem, which is climate change. So there are actually multiple avenues in yeah. which helps, and some are more apparent than others, and, mm-hmm. and, and some are very, very obscure, but nonetheless very important. So, you know, the biogas is one. We don't have to, um, you know, pump as much natural gas. Um, you can do other things with, with, with sewage. So there's a different technology under which, basically, if you cook this sludge at higher, much higher temperature and higher pressure, what comes out is crude oil, mm-hmm. which makes sense. This is what happens um, to any biomass uh, on earth that like sits under a lot of pressure yep. you know, for a long enough time, except with modern technology, we don't have to wait for hundreds of years. Yeah. It actually takes 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, oil obviously is a controversial subject, but we still have a lot of industry and cars that still run on oil. So what it makes, it really makes it easier for maybe bigger, large scale industrial sewage plants to do something with their output. It literally can work as an insert, like like a cartridge. You can think of it as a cartridge that you insert at the end of your sewage cycle. Once you remove, you know, toilet paper and whatnot, mm-hmm. what, what's in it, you know, you cook it and out comes crude oil that can be refined. And guess what? It can power your car. Well, we don't have to mine more oil if we do that. Um, fertilizer, obviously. So to produce fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer that a lot of us depend on for growing our food um, takes a lot of energy and a lot of pollution. It's yeah. just what it is to produce mm-hmm. synthetic nitrogen, very polluting process. Mm-hmm. If we can cut down on that process by reusing you know, with our own organic goodness, we don't have to pollute the atmosphere as much. That's two. And then there is another kind of a very little known thing that I in the book call the, 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 the ticking bomb mm. um, uh, of, of our coastal marshes and probably other coastal habitats. So in, um, at least in, 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 in the older versions of sewage plants of which we still have plenty around this country, um, so what happens is they clean the wastewater enough to put it back to the environment safely. It doesn't contain pathogens, but it still contains a lot of nutrients, still contains a lot of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, all great fertilizers. When you release this water into any body of water, lakes, rivers, ocean, or marsh, um, it goes on to fertilize all the wrong things, 
you know, stuff grows that shouldn't be growing, like algae. Yeah, the ocean doesn't want that. They the don't ocean want that. Does not want that. Yeah. Not that. Yeah. And neither do the marshes. So marshes don't mm -hmm. grow algae, but they grow yeah. marsh plants in the wrong way. Marsh uh, plants grow too tall, the weak uh, with very weak roots because it's easy to get all the food. They don't have to grow roots big enough, and they don't hold the marsh together anymore. And the marsh is still falling apart. Wow. Why is it bad? What's a marsh to us? We don't usually take vacations in the mar in marshlands. Mm -hmm. Well, um, marshes are the entities that uh, protect us from floods. Most importantly, that's where the upcoming tides kind of like the waves from a sink mm -hmm. also places where fish grow little mm -hmm. juvenile fish grow that we later eat so when we destroy these areas we open up pandora's you know box of problems um and when marshes fall apart they release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere which we yeah. already have planted can figure out how to get it out of there yeah. so if we figure out how to restore this broken link mm -hmm. um, that I talk about in the book, mm -hmm. solve this problem too. There's so many different ways in which solving a sewage problem actually helps us with dealing with climate change. It's really quite amazing. Absolutely. From so many angles that you just discussed. And then, you know, we were talking about human sewage, but also uh, you talk about, you know, poultry farms and all the animal waste going on. And there was a point where you point out that, poultry dung, dung could replace 10% uh, of coal used for electricity. And, you know, yeah. there's, there's talk about all the hydrochar and there's just so many different aspects that you point to in the book that just, it just, it really, it, it can all add up to just so, helping solve the, this, this major, major problem. So we've talked now uh, about fertilizer some and, and, and uh, biogas and other ways, um, you know, sewage can be used, but I mean, it, a big, portion of your book is is dedicated to the medical uses of it and some of this I truly did not know about at all um the other stuff I was I'm very versed in but there was um I didn't even realize they that in, uh, intestinal superbug you were talking about was it known as c diff um mm -hmm. how many people it affected how many people it kills annually and that was unbelievable to me and then also what was proposed in this book and and the examples was um uh, uh, fecal transplants. And I, I didn't know about this process and now it was being used as all. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the potential of, uh, of these transplants or the idea in general. I think, I think other people like me would, would, would kind of, you know, like their eyes open to it. It's wild. Yeah. Um, so interestingly enough, the book, the very idea of the book started with uh, my story on a fecal transplant that I think I wrote in 2014. Mm fairly small startup, startup type of publication because no big publications wanted it. The, the topic was just too wacky. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I somehow came across this woman's website, the woman who is now in my book, Catherine Dove, who was one of the pioneers of the fecal transplant. So mm -hmm. she um, somehow was infected with the superbug called C. diff with, or C. difficile. Um, it's a really interesting superbug. Some people don't seem to be affected by it at all, probably just like it works with the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And others, it just wipes, wipes out entirely, it colonizes their intestines, and nothing can really make it go away. And doctors try, you know, one um, antibiotic after another. Uh, it still survives, 
but at the same time, the antibiotics wipe out all the native bacteria. And now there's nothing to stop the superbug from, you know, thriving in there. And people just basically die from diarrhea and dehydration mm-hmm. over a course of time. Awful. Awful. Um, yeah. So I think she was on her fifth or sixth bout of it and, 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 and there was no end in sight. Um, somehow she did a research on, on, online with her family and they found that in some of this um, very um, reluctant, you know, very persistent infections in the past, some doctors tried uh, what they call the fecal transplant, basically taking the poop out of, you know, produced by healthy people mm-hmm. and putting them into the ill ones. Um, it was also tried on animals. So it wasn't a completely, new, completely, totally new uh, type of procedure, and she had nothing to lose. So she decided to try it. And basically, you know, there's some gory details there. You yeah. take your poo, you put it in the blender, um, and you put it in the enema. You give uh, you have that person that enema, and you hope for the best. And what was really amazing, it was always the best. Like people yeah. recovered so quickly with yeah, the, the speed. The speed of return on that was unbelievable. People were feeling better that night. Yeah, yeah, and and she was not the only one. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it still might have been shocking, like in you know last de- early last decade, but it's not really shocking anymore. Uh, I think right now we, the medical world have realized that your, your poop is an ecosystem. In addition to being fertilizer and all this other good things, yeah. it's also an ecosystem teeming with microbes. Mm-hmm. And the right microbes is what gives you health, intestinal health, uh, general you know, good immunity to other um, diseases. And it most certainly plays some, royal, uh, some role in in diseases like, um, you know, diabetes and, and, and whatnot, it's not fully understood, but we know it plays a role. So it, it, it makes sense why, why it works. Yeah. I mean, the idea of, um, the intestinal, uh, um, microbiome is, is, it was someone uh, mentioned it, it might've been even you in the book. It was like a rainforest inhabited by trillions of creatures that, form a complex ecosystem, which can keep pathogens at bay. I mean, it's really well, I, I, I love the focus on gut health and on what's actually these living beings that, that we're not just one living being, but we're made up of all these living beings that can work and everything like that. So, um, you know, so there's this power in this waste of ours and you're seeing it in the rise of stool banks and there's big money in stool banks right now, which is wild and not only for ideas of fecal transplants, but actually, um, more targeted approaches towards, um, uh, you know, capsules of fecal metal medicine and everything. And can you tell us a little bit about the the rise of these stool banks and 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 um, what's happening there? Yeah, sure. So the first one, to my knowledge, that I talk about in the book, um, was created in Massachusetts. Um, kind of loosely attached to Massachusetts uh, to, to MIT um, by two people who are not husband and wife um, and, and uh, it evolved out of the same problem. One of the relatives, um, a young one, a young person, you know, be, you know contracted C. difficile and couldn't get rid of it. Uh, and again, nothing worked except, you know, there was this thing called fecal transplant that one could do, but he couldn't find a doctor. And if he find a doctor, he had to wait six months and nobody wants to wait six months. Um, when you might die during this time. And so 
these two individuals, you know, looked into uh, how would one rectify the problem, and they decided to create a stool bank that could, you know, screen healthy people, you know, collect their donations, and then keep a bank of them, just like you keep, you know, a, a other um, other that biological is- tissues. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it took some time and some, you know, convincing. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a very unconventional idea. It's not what we usually do. We, we the medical community used to think of you know, fecal matter as something that spreads disease, not helps cure mm. it. But I, but I think by the time they created it, I'm trying to remember what year was that. Probably something like 2015, 2016. I might be wrong, but that was around around that time. Um, I think the medical community was beginning to realize that it doesn't have to be that way. So yeah. it, you know, it all depends on what ecosystem you're dealing with. If it's a diseased ecosystem that has the wrong bacteria, then it definitely spreads disease. If it's a healthy, it comes from a healthy person. It's not. It's exactly the other way around. So the way this stool bank operates, uh, called Open Biome, uh, is you know it screens healthy donors, and they are invited to come in and donate a few times a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, if all goes well, this becomes, you know, somebody, uh, you know, somebody's fecal transplant. Um, they screen very rigorously. Uh, if, if anything, if any blips come, you know, comes up on, on, on the, on their tests that their donations are discarded. So I think so far they've been doing okay. I think they had a one little blip when somebody died from um, mm. one transplant, uh-huh. but all, all in all, I think they've been doing quite well. I recently read that there is now one in Australia. I also think some larger medical institutions might be starting to keep them on site, mm-hmm. but it's still kind of like a very much budding technology. Um, and I, I, there's still so much to understand how all of these different bacteria interact in persons mm-hmm. and intestines. Yeah, it was um, wild to read that um, how you know, the rigorous, the, the, the testing is on the donors. I said, statistically joining the ranks of the uh, uh, stool donors is harder than to get into Harvard or MIT. And one of the reasons they mentioned, which I thought was fascinating is that uh, so many people have health issues they don't even know about they're walking around with. And when you start getting screening, but that's something, um, one last topic I want to talk about is, um, you know, uh, this, you know, uh, our waste and this kind of came into, um, the conversation around COVID as a diagnostic tool. There was certain, I remember Columbia University was kind of testing their waste or other, certain countries were testing their waste as you could actually find out what is you know wrong with the population, but that could actually be done on a more personal level that we could find out there was, there's talk about smart toilets in your book and just ways we could actually be monitoring our health, do better monitoring our ways. So as a diagnostic tool, it could be pretty important as well, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, you know, in the ideal world, you could envision, you know, sometime in the future, maybe 50 years from now, you wake up in the morning, you shuffle, you know, to your, to your porcelain throne, you do mm-hmm. your business and out comes a printout saying you're low on electrolytes and you're also really low on magnesium and mm-hmm. you don't need this and that. And we detected a slight hint of infection. So maybe you want to tell your doctor or, you know, repeat this test tomorrow. And they know exactly what it is with you today. 
Um, and you could probably use it to the point that you never will get seriously sick because before you do, your toilet will tell you. Preventative maintenance, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, it's just such a brilliant, brilliant idea. Love the idea. Um, it's actually, a technologically, it's not even that hard to implement. We have a lot of... Um, we have a lot of ways to test the various bacteria. Like, look what happened with coronavirus testing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two years into it, and their home tests, which tell you the answer in 10 minutes. If you remember how much trouble we had with the first test, oh, yeah. early 2020. So this mm -hmm. is how quickly we can move. Um, the really tricky part is to make sure that the smart toilets um, operate well all the time. Somebody will have to tune them because yeah. it's now will be a piece of sophisticated equipment, mm -hmm. much more sophisticated than an X-ray machine. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's where it, it, it won't be a regular plumber. Yeah, it, yeah. Be somebody with a PhD. Yeah, so, the possibilities are super exciting there, and just yeah. I think all in all, I just saw so many exciting possibilities throughout the whole book, and I want to mention this too. The the way you wrote it, there's a lot of um, your voice is there the whole time. There's a lot of heart, it's a lot of humor throughout it. And it just makes it a wonderful read as you're going through these whole stories. And and I mean this, some of the ideas in it, I just really feel like they can change the way, change the world in, in a major way. And that's that's very, very exciting. So I, I appreciate you know you taking the time to discuss the book here with us. It's really, really excellent. Thank you. Three, it's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Because two times three is six. And three times six is eighteen. And the eighteenth letter in the alphabet is R. Yeah. We got three R's we're gonna talk about today. We gotta learn to reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.